This episode of The Explainer is supported by Daft Advantage Ads. Selling a home is a huge financial decision, so make sure your property is on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Hello and welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Christine Bowen in for Laura Byrne, and this week, who is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and does he stand a chance at being the next US President? If you've heard the name Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at all, then you've probably heard one of two narratives about him. The first is that he's a high-profile conspiracy theorist and anti-vaxxer. He's coasted on his family name for decades, he's never held public office, and he's now making a no-hope, Conor Roy-style attempt to wrestle the Democratic nomination for president from Joe Biden. The other is that he's a man willing to speak truth to power. He's criticising elites, he's been strong on the environment for decades, and he's offering Democrats a real alternative to a man that a lot of them are lukewarm about, who's running for a second term as US president. Polls show RFK Jr. trailing Biden, so it's an uphill battle to put it mildly. But Kennedy is really fighting for this. While the Biden campaign is happy to ignore him, Kennedy is appearing on Joe Rogan's podcast, he's being profiled in the New York Times, and this week he opened his campaign headquarters in New Hampshire. Every candidate thinks they can win, but Kennedy really thinks he can do it, despite all the evidence. So can he? Is there any world in which this happens? And what do we know about RFK Jr. and how he's ended up here? With me today is my guest, Marion McKeown, the US correspondent for the Business Post. Marion, thanks so much for being here for this. It's a pleasure, Christine. There are still 15 months to go until the US 2024 presidential election, but there's a lot happening right now. So can you set the scene for us? What's the temperature of it all like? And what do we know about the likely candidates for each party at this stage? Uh, Sure. Well, the temperature is way overheated at the moment, is what I'd say. You know, this will be my, I think, fifth presidential campaign, or is it my sixth? But every year, it's like Christmas, it starts sooner. And this one really started on the 22nd of January 2021, the day after Joe Biden was finally inaugurated, because on that day, the Republicans decided we are getting back the White House in 2024, come hell or high water. And of course, Donald Trump really, even though he did have to concede in the end, decided that he was the candidate and he had been cheated and God help anyone else who in the Republican Party who dared to think they should have a shot at it. So at the moment you have um, it, you have basically indictment season uh, instead of silly season here in America. And it's Donald Trump all the time. And he is just dominating the news every day. And with every new indictment, uh, his approval ratings go up and up. Now, about as recently as March this year, it seemed that Ron DeSantis was going to be the guy, that he was the guy that the corporate donors were going to put all their money behind, that the multi-billionaires who basically fund the GOP candidates were going Going to support him and that he was going to effectively be the the Donald Trump but without the Donald Trump a sheet of indictments. Now I was always skeptical that this was going to work because the point about Donald Trump is that he's Donald Trump. This is why the crowds love him. They could care less about his policies. They do love the fact that he hates the same people that they hate, which is the elites and immigrants and various other groups and, you know, the LGBT community, etc. They love the fact that he has the same prejudices and biases as them and he is not afraid to shout them from the rooftops. But it's, it's a cult of personality, essentially. And Donald Trump is now the Republican Party. So the fact that Ron DeSantis was going to try 
to take away Donald Trump's base by being more to the right than Donald Trump was never going to work. And the main reason it was never going to work is that Ron DeSantis is, I was at an event of his recently, there were 44 people there in an event where they had planned to have about a thousand people. Uh, You know, he started off with great hopes and uh, he just became more and more odd and obnoxious and fixated on, you know, rewriting black history, basically banning transgenderism. Like, And people just don't understand why he's really doing any of this because they're not positions that could win the, the you know, the moderates or the independents. None of the, these positions are positions that um, are going to take any Trump supporters away from Trump. And what do we know so far about how candidates are performing in the polls? So you have at the moment, Ron De- Trump is at about 55%. Ron DeSantis is at about 13% in the polls at the moment, having gone down from about 30% in three months. All of his donors have basically paused or are running for the hills. And the next person um, at the moment who's showing is Chris Christie with 5%. It's looking, you can never say never in American politics, because the unlikely and the unthinkable frequently happens. But at the moment, it's looking like we're going to have a 2020 rematch with Donald Trump getting the Republican nomination, unless he is in fact in prison, which is really not that likely for various legal technical reasons. Uh, So on the other side, you have the Democrats. Now, usually, if you're the incumbent, you're it. You don't get challenged, you know, unless, the. in fact, ironically, the last time an incumbent was challenged was Jimmy Carter back in, eight, in nine, I was going to say 1880, in 1980, when he was running against Ronald Reagan. And it was Ted Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy's junior's uncle, who challenged him. And the irony. (laughs) The irony, yeah. But people were kind of, now, I'm not sure. I don't think Jimmy Carter would have won against Ronald Reagan anyway because of of the various situations that were going on in the States at that stage, the energy crisis, the economic crisis, the hostage crisis. You know, he was really looking like a weak president anyway. But Ted Kennedy's challenge was really the the final nail in the coffin, you know, and and he was routed then by, by Ronald Reagan. So I don't think that's going to happen this time. One of the big differences is that, um, for starters, the Kennedys and Joe Biden, the Kennedy family at large, um, and Joe Biden are very, very close. He's appointed three or four different Kennedys to senior positions uh, when back in when his his wife and infant daughter were killed in a horrific crash and his two sons who were two and three years of age at the time were seriously injured Ted Kennedy went to the hospital in Delaware and stayed there with him and they were very close friends and so there's always been a big affection between the Bidens and the Kennedys they're kind of old-fashioned liberals you know those kind of old-fashioned take care of health care take care of education take care of the poor liberals and um you know and and so they're appalled. The, the Kennedy family are, and they're openly appalled by this. And recently, um, Jack Schlossberg, who is JFK's um, grandson, he's Caroline Kennedy's son, uh, he he sent a post on his Instagram and the post said, and this kind of sums up the family's response. Uh, The post said, I've listened to him. I know him. I have no idea why anyone thinks he should be president. What I do know is his candidacy is an embarrassment. Now, that's hardly a ringing endorsement from your own family, from one of the most storied political families in American history. It's probably the opposite of a a ringing endorsement. Uh, I think so. Can you tell us a bit more about, about who Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is? 
Um, can you explain who he is to people who may not know anything about him beyond the fact that he's a member of the Kennedy clan? Okay, and you know, he's a pretty senior in terms of Kennedy royalty. He'd be up there as one of the princes, okay? So he is the second son of Robert F. Kennedy, who, of course, was assassinated while he was running for president, aged just 42, um, after he had just won the California primary. So back in 1968, he looked like, obviously, uh, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated five years previously, and it looked like Bobby Kennedy was going to assume his brother's mantle. There was a big momentum behind him. He had a lot of raw political talent. He was seen as somebody who could unite the country after the assassination of Martin Luther King, after so much turmoil in America over Vietnam, etc. And he was really seen as a shining beacon from ju- for justice, having started out actually pretty illiberal, it has to be said, um, and, and kind of very supportive of the the McCarthyism, you know, and the Red Scare and all that. But he moved very much to become a champion of civil rights, to become a champion of liberalism. Now, he was, as I say, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Bobby Kennedy, as he now calls himself, was 14 years, he was nine years of age when his uncle was assassinated, and he was 14 years of age when his father was assassinated in in um, a hotel kitchen in California. Uh, he was flown by, uh, by Hubert Humphrey's private plane to California to try and reach his father before he died. And so you can imagine for a 14-year-old who went through the public horror of seeing his uncle assassinated five years previously, that this was really traumatic and and really disturbing. So basically, he... Uh, You know, uh, Bobby Kennedy died at 42. His wife was, I think, 40 or 41. She was pregnant with her 11th child at the time. Uh, uh, Her children were mostly in in primary school. Many of them hadn't even started school at that stage. They were aged one, three, four. uh, And uh, the oldest was, I think, 15 or 16. So uh, by all accounts, she understandably wasn't able to cope. The grief of her husband's death um, combined with having 11 children on her own um, and there was no scarcity of money obviously but the children were went off to boarding school and whatever. Bobby Kennedy became involved in drugs, he became addicted to heroin uh, and he had a kind of a lost period for quite a long time. Now he's a very bright guy, he did get into Harvard, uh, he did become a lawyer and sometime around his early 30s he kind of re-emerged from this sort of miasma of, you know, he had been arrested several times for drugs, he'd been to rehab, etc. And he became, he kind of found his purpose in becoming an environmental lawyer. Now, he became a hugely effective environmental lawyer. And the first time I came across him was in New York. And it was about, I would say, about 22 years ago. Um, and he was at that stage the general counsel for an organization called Riverkeeper, uh, which is an organization that was set up uh, to basically bring to, to clear um, the toxicity out of America's filthiest rivers. Now, at the time, the Hudson River in New York was the dirtiest river in America. It was full of pollutants. And Bobby Kennedy, as a very pragmatic environmental lawyer, decided, OK, 
if you just make this look like it's it's an anti-corporate thing and, and you're, you know, you're not going to succeed. So what he did was he got together a lot of very wealthy corporate people who lived in the Hudson Valley, who liked to go fishing, but who were CEOs in corporations. And he said, you see, you can't go fishing anymore because all the fish are dead because your company across the river is polluting it. And he was very effective in a mixture of kind of having the right contacts and also being a very good litigator. And the, the net result was that the Riverkeeper um, organization succeeded in turning the Hudson River from the dirtiest, most polluted river in all of America to one of the cleanest. And as I said, he did that by by harnessing the energies of the environmentalists and of, of business, the business communities. So, um, he, you know, you could see this guy had talent and purpose, and when he harnessed it, he made things happen. So the problem with him, though, is that he's never been very likable. Um, and I met him that time for the first time, and I was really that people say in private he can be very witty and he can be charming, but in public he came across as very taciturn, slightly irascible, and entirely humorless. Now, and this was at a fundraiser where you know people are usually are kind of happy to press the flesh and chat and whatever, and he just seemed pretty aloof and pretty arrogant. And I spoke to somebody who knows him quite well there, and I said, uh, you know, this is and he said, oh, yeah, this is him. This is what he's like. You know, <laughs> this is what you get. So I think one of the things with Bobby Kennedy is what you see is pretty much what you get. So from there, um, as I say, he, you know, he had a really good run as an environmental lawyer. He sued Monsanto. He was very opposed to pesticides um, and, you know, all, all, you know, modification of crops and all that kind of thing. And from there, he somehow segued about... In the late 90s, I would say, perhaps, and early 2000s, into becoming an anti-vaxxer. Now, at the moment, you, you if you call him an anti-vaxxer, he says you're defaming him, you're censoring him, you're taking him out of context, etc. But the fact is, he did pick up on a discredited report in The Lancet about a connection between autism and vaccinations for measles and mumps, and etc. And he kind of ran with that. But based really on a discredited medical report. And he really kept it up and kept it up. Now, he's been vaccinated. All of his children have been vaccinated. But he, he became the sort of face of an American anti-vax movement, which is very closely linked to a movement in America at the moment where parents want to take over school boards. It's kind of a, a sort of a, a new iteration of the Proud Boys, as in they're seeing that the way to control America and the way to control what Americans learn is to control the school boards and control the kids, what they're taught in school, and then basically make them Republicans before they can spell their own names. Thinking of selling? Choose Adapt Advantage ads to guarantee unbeatable visibility, attract more buyers, and get the best price for your home. Ask your estate agent for a Daft Advantage ad today. So what's in his manifesto? What is he saying to people to encourage them to vote for him? Is he bringing in the anti-vax things that you're talking about here? Is he explicit about them? Or is his platform broader? Is he trying to appeal to more voters? Well, he's got this weird mishmash of a platform. Now, last week I went to an event of his, uh, which was in Los Angeles. And I also was at an event of his down in Arizona. And um, his main things are, it appears to be, like COVID gave him his big springboard. You know, he wrote a book about Anthony Fauci, which is really a nasty 
book, which is full of crazy allegations that are just not backed up by evidence. Um, he also claims that the CIA um, assassinated his uncle and possibly his father. And he's, you know, it's it's hard to get a handle, Christine, on what he really does stand for, because he kind of segues from one conspiracy theory to another. And he's talking about American debt squads in the 80s. And yes, you know, America's record in South America in the 80s was, you know, really questionable at best. And its involvement in coups and in the assassinations of leaders who were, who it viewed as communists. So Ronald Reagan had a, and you know, we saw the culmination in the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, So, but he's still going on about this. And, you know, also he talks about how he's going to change American policy. He's against supporting the Ukraine in the war. He's also very much with Trump. A lot of his positions have a lot more in common with MAGA, you know, supporters and, and the, the Republican far right than they do with Democrats. So he's really suspicious of the government. He really wants to seal the border, to build that wall, to lock down the border, to stop immigrants coming over. Um, and, you know, he, but he doesn't. And I did ask him uh, just last week, I said, well, look, what is your plan if you want to close the border? Because I've been to the border so many times and I've spoken to so many people and even Border Patrol people will say to you, with, you know, these people are so desperate. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you build a wall. They will risk their lives every time to flee what they're fleeing. And so I put this to Robert and uh, to Bobby Kennedy. I said, what is your proposal to disincentivize people? Because if you want to stop people crossing the border, you know, you've got to tackle what's going on in their countries. You've got to give some kind of development aid or whatever. And he went, oh, those figures are all out of date. Now who's coming in is it's people from Africa who are coming in through Mexico. It's, and he's, you know, he does this thing where I've been to the border, I saw the people who are coming in and it's not um, who you're saying. Well, you know, I've been to the border several times, Christine. I've interviewed young mothers with babies, you know, who have arrived, in, you know, in horrific states, you know, after weeks and weeks of crossing the desert. And they all have the same, not the same story, but they all have stories of terror, of acute poverty, of violence that they're fleeing. So, you know, he he has this sort of Trump-like attitude about the people who are crossing the border have no business coming here. They're not real, you know, asylum seekers. And even if they are, and he doesn't have any idea that I can discern how to deal with the problem other than to adopt a kind of a Trumpy, shut the border, stop letting these people in. And, and you know, that's very much the antithesis, I think, of what the Democratic Party have tried to do. Look, both parties have made a mess of the border, but that's one of his big his big bugbears. You know, COVID is another and the government conspiracies and the shutdowns and we were lied to. And he claims that without a shred of evidence, I have to say, that the COVID vaccines killed more people than they saved, which is, is really is just not borne up by the facts at all. And he also made a controversial claim, which he wrote back that... Um, you know, he initially suggested that COVID had been pretty well developed and modified to target what black and white people and that it had also been, um, you know, he, he mused on the fact that it didn't seem to affect Chinese people or Ashkenazi Jews in the same way. And of course, that caused a, an absolute ruckus. And people said, including his own family, that it was disgraceful to say that, that he was being anti-Semitic and that, you know, all of these things. He also made a comment uh, last year, went at a, at an anti-COVID um, 
march in in Washington that, you know, at least Anne Frank could, you know, hide in an attic or escape to Switzerland. And it was such a saying that the lockdown in America was akin to Nazi Germany, you know, and it was such a cross thing to say, such an ignorant thing to say that he was deservedly condemned by by everyone pretty much. And then he sort of clawed it back and said, oh, I didn't really say that. It was taken out of context. Well, he did say it. He's been banned from all of the major platforms for the reasons you've been spelling out. So he's banned from Facebook, from Twitter, from YouTube, all of which would normally be central planks for a political campaign. So how is he getting support? How are voters hearing about him? Well, you know, they're hearing about him because he... he he will go on something like the Joe Rogan show. Uh, he has an, a standing invitation on Fox News and, and on the right wing news um, sort of outlets that have proliferated in, in the last couple of years. Uh, he is now he has been allowed back on Instagram, I do believe, where he had about 400,000 followers. I think they have la- allowed him to reopen his account, um, obviously with caveats. Uh, so and, but, you know, he's not doing uh, look. A lot of this to me, to me, he's Conor Roy of the of of succession. You know, he's this guy who was born with a, a into enormous wealth and privilege, although, as we, we acknowledge, he did have a very difficult childhood, obviously. Uh, and he was born with a family name that is Kennedy. And he thinks that that gives him the right, even though most of his platform would be very anti what what. Kennedys would traditionally have stood for, you know, his his uh, website says put a Kennedy back in the White House. So he's absolutely willing to trade on the Kennedy name, but to sort of co-opt it into this kind of weird conspiracy theory world that has a lot more of the same common with with what Donald Trump is parroting than what what any Democrat candidate would would parrot. <laughs> so, Marriott, how is he a Democratic candidate? Because from everything that you're saying about him, and from what people are hearing about him. He sounds an awful lot more like he would be a Republican or an independent. So is it just that he's got the Kennedy brand name? Is it is it that simple? Oh, yeah. With, with, without the Kennedy brand name with, and the fact that he physically looks, I mean, not so much now that he's almost 70, but before he was physically so like his father that it was almost uncanny. So he has absolutely traded on the Kennedy name. It's the Kennedy name that's given him all his connections, his access. If his name was Bobby Smith, you, you would never have heard of him. But it is interesting that because there is a large element of the Democratic Party at the moment as well that's very dissatisfied with his leaderships. It's very dissatisfied with Joe Biden and all these old people. Now, it's interesting to me that Kennedy, who will be 70 very soon, is seen as a young candidate, which which is kind of astonishing. But he has got an energy about him that's more akin to Donald Trump than Joe Biden, who does seem like a much older man than Donald Trump. Um, And so, you know, but it, it is, and like his merch is, it's all, it's actually, you know, he does have good merch. I will say that. It's all these kind of retro T-shirts, 19 sort of 60s style T-shirts with Kennedy 2024, which are basically very, you know, the same as what his uncle and and, and um, father were using, that kind of, and they do look very cool. They're the kind of t-shirts that you wouldn't be embarrassed to wear, you know. Um, and so he's got the merch, he's got the name, he's got the access to any news channel or TV channel he pretty well wants to go on. Um, he does very few events. Most of events, his events are Zoom events and, and online events, you know. Um, so he's not, you kind of have to really, you know, work at it to, to 
find out when he's doing things that the public are allowed to and that the press are allowed to. Uh, so, but but so far, like the, the event that I attended in in um, Los Angeles, which is where he and his wife live. His wife is, of course, Cheryl Teague, who played Larry David's long-suffering wife in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, she's come out a couple of times and, you know, very subtly and carefully made it clear that she does not share all of his views, that while she supports his candidacy, she doesn't share his views on a number of issues. Um, and Larry David, who introduced them, is apparently appalled and, and has made it very clear that that this guy does not have his vote. Uh, so, um, you know, he he... This is going nowhere. And I I suspect that he knows this is going nowhere. But he has tapped into, as I said, a disaffection amongst at one point he was considered to have about 20 percent of Democratic support. It's now about 13. He's losing support because it's like a lot of people who are novelty candidates. And he is a novelty candidate, whether he likes it or not. The more you see of them, the less you realize that they're serious. And so, yeah, he you know, I think he thinks that if he gets to New Hampshire, it's there's an open um, prize primary in New Hampshire, with me, which means you can vote, um, whether you're a, a Democrat or a Republican, you can vote for any candidate. And I think he thinks that he could really have a good showing in New Hampshire, which is very early, and that that might trigger some kind of a world where, I don't know, if Joe Biden suddenly decides he's not going to run or whatever, that Kennedy could then be viable. But he'll never be viable because his policies aren't viable, such as they are. Who exactly is he appealing to? Is it Democrats who want an alternative to Biden or is it people who are more like floating voters? I saw one thing saying that he's quite popular among groups that Biden doesn't do well with, like women and Latinos. So is he trying to eke in there and carve them away? You know, I don't think that he's doing well, particularly with women or Latinos. In in my experience of speaking to both of those groups about Kennedy, um, I think he's doing well with the cranks. You know, with the people who, like I spoke to maybe 20 or 30 people who attended his event and they all had a conspiracy theory or two of their own. And they were there because they thought Kennedy was right about this or right about that or right about lasers coming from space. And, you know, I had to point out to one of them, well, that was Mark. Taylor Green, actually, you know, and, and, uh, so there, there are there are there are quirks and cranks in both parties. Neither party has a monopoly on them, you know. And there is a dissatisfaction with Biden that pe- Democrats want somebody new. They want somebody newer and younger and more assertive. Uh, but Kennedy isn't the guy. Now to hear Kennedy talk, as I say, he is like Conor Roy. He has this weird sense of entitlement. All candidates say, when I'm president, I'll reunite the country. When I'm president, when I, you know, enter the White House. But to hear him saying it, as he does with, you know, he starts almost every sentence with it. It just sounds kind of absurd and kind of, you kind of want to go, look, will you grow up? Seriously, you know, just grow up. Presidential campaigns are notoriously expensive in America. Is he using family money? Is it money from supporters? He's got a couple of donors that he's certainly not, you know, he may be using his own money. He ain't getting any of the Kennedy Trust Fund, I can tell you that, to run this campaign. Uh, So, I mean, all of the Kennedys are pretty well independently wealthy, you know, to some degree. So his campaign is a bit of a shoestring campaign, though, because the way he does it, if you do most of your events on Zoom, you know, and occasionally just turn up in, you know, here and there at at, at um, small venues. Uh, it it doesn't require very much, um, you know, funding really. Like he has, yes, he has a website. Yes, he has a little bit of, you know, he has some merch that he's selling. But, you know, so far he hasn't had to invest any real money in the campaign. It was like Donald Trump, because he had the brand name, he spent very, very little to get himself, you know, to catapult 
called himself onto the national media and the public consciousness back in 2015. It was the, the name that did the work for him. And Kennedy's the same, as I say, without the name and this kind of hodgepodge of weird positions that he has, uh, nobody would have heard of him. And do you think that for candidates like Kennedy or DeSantis, who you've spoken about, do you think that they're just going to fall away? It's just going to be Trump and Biden again in 2024? Uh, you know, I think unless something happens to Biden, unless he has a serious health issue, Biden's the candidate. Biden is the candidate because he's the incumbent and he can very correctly point to the fact that, look, I had the best midterm results of any president since John F. Kennedy, ironically. Um, you know, I am the one who is delivering here, you know, so um, and and I think that if people look at his record, Biden's a terrible messenger. He doesn't, he's not communicating to people He's not giving them the feel that the country has turned around, that the economy's on the up, that they're actually all doing very well. He just doesn't have the ability to convey that. Uh, but he has done really solid work as president, not on everything, but he's got enough things that he can point to and say, I did this, 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 and this. Uh, so Biden is going to be the candidate unless something happens to him. Now, you know, one of the problems for Biden seems to be that a lot of people including Democrats, are not that happy with Kamala Harris. They think, OK, Biden's going to be 86 by the time he leaves the White House, if he gets a second term. He's going to be an old man. Um, and what will happen if he becomes ill during his second term? What will happen if he's no longer able to function as president? And Democrats have decided, and America has decided for various reasons, that they don't want Kamala Harris. Now, Biden cannot jettison Kamala Harris, because to do so would be fatal, even though she hasn't resonated with Democrats for various reasons and that we could get into, but we won't. Um, and uh, so what Biden, you know, an ideal scenario for him would be if Kamala Harris decided, and she may, that, look, I don't want another four years of being vice president, of being ridiculed and criticised and slammed by everybody, of having 13% approval ratings. You know, I don't see what's in it for me. She could decide that she now I have heard and I do know for a fact that she's been spending a lot of time at her home in California, in, in Los Angeles, uh, and which is kind of strange. It's not just the summer. She's been spending increasingly more time there. It could be that she's considering her future, although it seems unlikely. But if she decided she didn't want a second term as vice president, then obviously Trump could bring or not Trump, Biden could bring in somebody else who might energize the party more. Somebody like, I would say, a Gretchen Whitmer, who is the very successful governor of Michigan, swing state as well, one that he really needs. Gavin Newsom is obviously chomping at the bit to get on the national stage. He's the governor of California. So that would be a wild card situation where Biden could get some new energy behind him. But whether he does or not, whether it's Biden and Harris or not, and most likely it will be, Biden is the candidate for 2024. And it looks like Trump will be as well. Do you want to make a prediction on who's going to win out of those two? Uh, honestly, you just don't know in America. On paper, of course, Biden should win. He hasn't been indicted for 84 different crimes. He hasn't been you know, convicted by a civil jury of sexual abuse of, of, and, and defamation. Uh, he isn't addled with scandal, although his son and his, his um, failure to distance himself from his son 
has was a big error on his part. Uh, back back in the days when Hunter Biden was put on the board of Burisma, Biden should have blocked that at all costs. He didn't. Uh, so his son is his Achilles heel. Now, you know, you would think given all that, given the successes he can point to, the economy turning around, you would think it would be a shoe-in. It won't be a shoe-in. This will be fought. This will be a brutal campaign if it is Biden and Trump. And honestly, I, I'm not prepared to call it. It should be Biden. But because of the electoral college, because of the way the election system works in America, the presidential election, you know, it's not just a straightforward popular vote. And, and that's where things get complicated and unpredictable. And so we still have 15 months and at least three criminal trials to go before we know who it'll be. Marion, thank you so much. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft Advantage Ads, the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Looking to get the best price for your home? Ask your estate agent for a Daft Advantage ad today. So that's it from us. Thanks for listening to The Explainer, which is produced by Nikki Ryan. And many thanks to Marion McKeown for being our guest this week. If you enjoy listening to us, you might consider leaving us a review in the place where you get your podcasts. We read them all and we appreciate them all. We'll be back in your feed next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.